Ezekiel chapter 16, let's begin reading in verse 4. As for your nativity, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed in water to cleanse you. You were not rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No eye pitied you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you. But you were thrown out into the open field when you yourself were loathed on the day you were born. And when I passed by you and saw you struggling in your own blood, I said to you in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you in your blood, live. I made you thrive like a plant in the field. And you grew, you matured, you became very beautiful. Your breasts were formed, your hair grew, but you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and looked upon you, indeed, your time was the time of love. So I spread my wing over you and covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you, and you became mine, says the Lord God. Then I washed you in water. Yes, I thoroughly washed off your blood, and I anointed you with oil. I clothed you in embroidered cloth and gave you sandals of badger skin. I clothed you with fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments, put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck, and I put a jewel in your nose, earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen, silk, and embroidered cloth. You ate pastry of fine flour, honey, and oil. You were exceedingly beautiful and succeeded to royalty. Your fame went out among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through my splendor which I had bestowed on you, says the Lord God. But... You trusted in your own beauty, played the harlot because of your fame, and poured out your harlotry on everyone passing by who would have it. You took some of your garments and adorned multicolored high places for yourself and played the harlot on them. Such things should not happen, nor be. On a list of the Recording Industry Association of America's top songs in the 20th century, number 34 is the country classic Hank Williams' song, Your Cheatin' Heart. Here's a little sample of a great country song. to sleep, but sleep won't come the whole night through, your cheating heart will tell on you. They just don't make them like that anymore, do they? My dad is a huge country music fan, and his favorite singer was Hank Williams. 
And when I was growing up, there were nights when he would pull out his guitar and lay out his sheet music, and he would practice your cheating heart. I guess you could say I grew up singing Amazing Grace on Sunday mornings and your cheating heart on Monday nights. What a combination that was. And yet, this is the contrast that we find in Ezekiel chapter 16. For the first 14 verses are all about God's amazing grace, while the rest of the chapter is about Jerusalem's cheating heart. Isn't it interesting how many country songs in particular are about cheating hearts? Ever heard the riddle, what happens when you play a country music song backwards? Answer, the guy sobers up, he gets rehired at the factory, his dog stops howling, and his wife comes home. Here's a collection of actual lines from country songs that kind of help describe a cheating heart. You're out doing what I'm doing here without. How about this one? Does my ring hurt your finger when you go out at night? Were you, where are you spending your nights these days? Here's my favorite. I was flushed from the bathroom of your heart. How about this one? If fingerprints showed up on skin, wonder whose I'd find on you. You're so cold, I'm turning blue. Love in here, live in there, and lying in between. Or this one, there ain't no queen in my king-size bed. It's sad to go to a funeral of a good love that has died. Here's one. She got the gold mine, I got the shaft. You must think my bed is a bus stop the way you come and go. And last but not least, you're a hard dog to keep under the porch. These are all songs that God could have sung about the Jews of Jerusalem in the days of Ezekiel. They had a cheating heart. God married the Hebrew nation when he brought her out of Egypt. He made her his bride. And then he showered upon her riches untold, only to find out that his bride was an adulteress, a spiritual harlot. Judah was unfaithful to God, her husband, and she followed after idols. As Hank Williams would say, the Jews in Jerusalem had a cheating heart. Another line from a country song that also describes these first 16 verses here in chapter 16 Dirks Bentley sings, I bought the shoes that just walked out on me. God's benevolence was the reason that Judah became a great nation. But she took his riches, the riches that he gave her, and he used them to finance her idolatry. Notice chapter 16 begins, Again the word of the Lord came to me saying, Understand, The word picture that Ezekiel paints here in this chapter was not of his own creation. God was expressing his heart toward the Jews in Jerusalem through Ezekiel. And it's full of emotion, longing, desire, feeling. This is a powerful depiction of passion and pathos. God describes what he did for his people in a moving account. Chapter 16 sounds like a page from a romance novel or maybe the script from a Broadway play or the storyline from a dramatic movie. This is a vivid portrayal. 
In fact, if you have ever envisioned God as stern and emotionless, as just some heavenly judge perched behind a cold wooden bench with a blank stare on his face, forget that image. It couldn't be further from the truth. Ezekiel 16 proves that God is never distant or detached from his creation. God is emotionally invested in our plight. He's personally involved with his people. God really does love us and care for us. In fact, he is so wrapped up in us, he has made himself vulnerable to our reactions. Think of it. You can actually break God's heart. Hosea 11 verse 8 is one of the most stirring verses in the Bible. It deals with this same theme as Ezekiel chapter 16. In Hosea, God knows that his people need to be judged. Their blatant backsliding needs to be stopped. A ferocious army will do the job, but the thought of harm befalling Israel breaks God's heart. And in Hosea, he cries out, How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I set you like Zobaim? Adma and Zobaim were cities destroyed years earlier with Sodom and Gomorrah. Hosea 11 verse 8 ends with God saying, My heart churns within me. My sympathy is stirred. Author Philip Yancey comments on this verse. He says, In the very act of delivering a series of threats, God seems to break down and a cry of love escapes. What a strange thought. God Almighty breaks down. His heart churns. But that sounds odd to us only because we underestimate His care and His compassion. You see, the Bible tells us that God is spirit. He has no physical body. But if he did share a human feature with mankind, I believe it would be tear ducts. God hurts. He gets angry. He grieves. God even weeps over us. His heart churns. He loves. He thrills. He rejoices. He cries for joy. He weeps with sorrow. And he does it more passionately than anyone you've ever met. God even keeps a diary. He is a feeling kind of person. As a matter of fact, you're reading a page from God's diary here in Ezekiel chapter 16. For this chapter in Ezekiel proves once and for all that God has the heart of a lover. When he found the Jewish people, they were like a baby girl that had been left out in an open field, left for dead. Found in the open Judah was still covered with blood and goo and fluids. Her umbilical cord was still attached to her mother's placenta. Obviously, no nurse was there to attend her birth. There was no one there to clean out her eyes and ears and throat, to stimulate her breathing, to wash her body and bundle her up in a warm blanket. No one there to check her vital signs or cuddle her close. As verse 5 says, No, I pitied you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you, but you were thrown out into the open field when you yourself were loathed on the day you were born. In fact, when God found his people Judah, 
the feeble tribe was struggling. They were fighting to stay alive. And I love verse 6. And when I passed by you and saw you struggling in your own blood, I said to you in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you in your blood, live. Check out this scene. The God of the universe stooped over a tiny baby hanging on to life. He is calling and coaxing and encouraging her, live, 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 I tell you. Literally, he wills this hopeless child to survive. And this is exactly what God has done for us. When he found me, I was bloodied and hopeless and abandoned. But God beat back spiritual death and he picked up the walking corpse called Sandy Adams, and he called to me, live, 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 I tell you. By the force of God's own will, he saved me. He willed me to live. He filled me with his spirit. He has thrilled me with his hope and love. And he's done the same for you. Reminds me of John chapter 1, verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This little girl survived, not because of some family connection, or because of the strength of her own will, or because of anyone else's assistance. There was no one else around. A loving God willed her to life. But that was just the beginning of all that God did for this young girl. He provided her every need and created an environment where she could grow and mature. And under his gentle nurturing and tutelage, this rejected child became a beautiful woman. God says in verse 8, when I, passed you, when I passed by you again and looked upon you, indeed your time was the time of love. And so I spread my wing over you and covered your nakedness. This was a Hebrew idiom for a marriage proposal. God had saved her from certain death. He oversaw and funded her development and education. And now he asks her to marry him. He wants to bless her the rest of her life. He says to her, yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you. And you became mine, says the Lord God. God made a promise. Peter Graves was the original star of Mission Impossible long before Tom Cruise came along, by the way. When he and his wife celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary, they attracted quite a bit of attention. For a Hollywood marriage to stay, uh, to last 50 years, this was indeed a Mission Impossible. Reporters wanted to know the secret of the marriage's incredible longevity. And I love Peter Gray's response. His reply was simple. We promised. We promised. And God promised Judah. He took an oath and he pledged to this girl his allegiance for all eternity. Imagine the king of the universe taking a solemn vow To provide the Jews all that a husband is supposed to provide a wife. Heart and home and happiness. And after the wedding, God even went further. 
Ezekiel describes how his grace became more extravagant. He showered her with riches. He fed her fine foods and sweet pastries. He exalted her to royalty. He pampered her with body oils and perfumes, designer clothes and leather sandals, linen gowns, silk stockings, hip expensive jewelry, bracelets and chains and studs and earrings, even a tiara. Hey, the Lord God literally took this woman from the brink of hell to the door of Zales. Reminds me of the father talking to his prospective son-in-law. He questioned the boy as to what he planned to do in his life. The young man answered, he said, I want to be a Bible scholar. I plan to study the Bible. Well, the father asked him, he said, well, yes, but how are you going to provide for my daughter? The boy answered, God will provide. But how will you buy her that expensive wedding ring that she deserves? God will provide. And how will you afford my daughter that nice house that she should live in? Well, God will provide. And how are you going to educate my grandkids? Sir, God will provide. Later that night, his wife asked him how the conversation went with this prospective son-in-law. The father said, well, he has no job and no plans, but the good news is he thinks I'm God. Well, in Ezekiel's story, God himself did indeed promise to provide for this bride all the very best. And you know, this could be a page from every Christian's diary. For Ephesians 1 verse 3 tells us that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. Hey, if you belong to Jesus, you possess incredible an incredible cachet of spiritual treasure. God has brought us from the brink of hell to the brink's truck. He's just unloaded it into our lives. In Christ, God has showered upon us his forgiveness and acceptance and joy and love and peace and power. He's restored our honor, our dignity. He's given us a new identity and an eternal purpose. He has infused meaning into our relationships and installed hope for our future. God sums it up for both us and Judah in verse 14. He says, Your fame went out among the nations because of your beauty, and it was perfect through my splendor which I bestowed on you. Our salvation was a Cinderella story. God fitted us with the silver slipper. I noted earlier that Ezekiel 16 could be turned into a novel or even a Broadway play. Well, by the way, it has. In 1956, a musical comedy debuted called My Fair Lady. It's based on this same story. An English professor takes in a lowly flower girl, Eliza Doolittle. Eliza is an ill-mannered, uncouth, uncultured little street urchin. But this professor, he invests time and goes to great expense to train Eliza. And as the years roll on, She becomes a poised and polished young lady, noble and beautiful. And to the professor's utter surprise, he falls in love with my fair lady. He ends up marrying Eliza Doolittle, and the two live happily ever after. And that is how Ezekiel chapter 16 should have ended. 
That's how it was supposed to conclude. If the nation Judah had just appreciated God's grace, just been content with the best, she too could have lived happily ever after. But the silver slipper that God fits on these people becomes the shoes that just walked out on me. From verse 15 onward, God's Eliza Doolittle turns out to be a flirt rather than fair. And a whore rather than a lady. God's my fair lady gets bored with the best and ends up a hooker. How could this be? Rather than thank God for his benevolence, Judah uses her beauty and her reputation to play the harlot. Read again the last line of verse 16. It's like an editorial note. Such things should not happen, nor be. Verse 15 says of God's wayward bride, You trusted in your own beauty, played the harlot because of your fame, and poured out your harlotry on everyone passing by who would have it. She went off the deep end. She didn't just rebel. She threw her dignity away. Ezekiel reveals the problem. She trusted in her own beauty. You see, she forgot what God had done for her, how much she needed God. She became self-sufficient and she became proud. She listened to all the flattery that came her way. She assumed that her beauty and her blessings were due to her own efforts. Judah didn't deny God per se. They just no longer thought him necessary. And thus they chased after other gods. And this is the attitude that leads to a cheating heart. Once there was a Spanish knight who had no food. He was a pauper. He scavenged for his next morsel every day. But in the evening he would always walk through the town square picking his teeth. As if he'd just finished eating a feast. And this is the picture that Ezekiel paints of Judah. They needed God, but they pretended not to. And this is the attitude that invades even some churches today. For rather than glorify God, our prosperity has been chalked up to our own genius, or our abilities, or some pattern that we followed. Like the church in Laodicea, you say, I am rich have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. When there is pride in our heart, our success goes to our head. And as in the case with Laodicea, it created a lukewarmness toward God. Pride eventually produces a cheating heart. The rest of this chapter tells us how Judah took God's blessings the gold and silver and fine clothes that he had placed in her wardrobe and used it to finance her harlotry, her idolatry. God's bride became a spiritual slut. The Jews set up a different idol at the top of every street in Jerusalem. This was supposed to be a holy city. Instead, it became a den of idols. Even after all that God had done for her, she made no attempt to be faithful to him. She cared little about loyalty. The nation followed after Egyptian gods and then Assyrian gods and then Babylonian gods. She went to bed and gave her heart to any god but the one true God. 
Verse 25 sums up her attitude in bold, brazen language. You offered yourself to everyone who passed by and multiplied your acts of harlotry. The Jews were willing to jump in bed with any new idol that appeared on the scene. They traded in the tried and true God for worship that was novel and exotic and mysterious and just different. They were lured in by curiosity rather than loyalty. And what about you, I have to ask? Do you wait on the Lord you love and has proved himself over and over? Or do you run to whatever's new that promises to ease your pain? The New American Standard Version renders verse 25 in phrases that will offend most people. At least it offends their sensibilities. For God says of his former bride, You spread your legs to every passerby to multiply your harlotry. Wow, this is not what you would expect to hear from God. It sounds so crude. But realize, God has been jilted. This is how God feels. A rabbi named Eleazar ben Hakranis, he wrote in the Jewish Mishnah that Ezekiel 16 should never be read in public. The rabbi was embarrassed by the risque language. But I believe God's intention was to shock us. I believe his language here is deliberate. One commentator explains it. God uses the method employed as indelicate as it may seem to people of refined taste and clean minds to portray the filthiness and repulsiveness of sin. No carefully chosen words or guarded expressions can make wickedness any less repulsive than it really is in the sight of a holy God. If you're shocked or offended by God's analogy, then apparently God has, has accomplished His intended purpose. Quite frankly, we all need to be shocked. For there are good folks, modest folks, fine Christian folks, who would never spread their legs in public, but they too have given their hearts to idols, to other gods. There are influences in their life that rival their love for God. Some folks have opened their minds and hearts and affections to evil influences, whereas other people have simply gotten preoccupied with attractions that might be good and wholesome, but they've pushed God to second place. Either way, theirs is a cheating heart. Rather than love God with a pure love, a first love, a reserved love, have you gotten into the habit of giving God your leftovers? After you've looked here, after you've been there, then you'll give God a little time and attention. Passion and excitement for God has deteriorated in your life to obligatory service and mechanical worship. Has that happened to you? Let me ask you, when God looks into your heart, does he see my fair lady or a cheating heart? Realize, idolatry isn't just a relic of the Old Testament. It's not just a faraway phenomenon. It doesn't just happen overseas. As D.L. Moody put it, you don't have to go to heathen lands today to find false gods. America is full of them. Whatever you love more than God is your idol. 
Idol worship occurs when a heart gets too attached to anything or anyone other than God. You can park an idol in your driveway. Or you can watch one on television. Or you can wear its jersey. Or listen to its CD. Or log on to its website. Possessions, people, popularity, position, profession, prosperity, pleasure, philosophy can all become idols. Modern idols come in many forms. They go by many different names. But mostly, we just call them our toys. Sounds so innocent, doesn't it? Oh, that's just one of my toys. An idol can be an item, an icon, an itinerary, an idea, an ideal. Oliver Wendell Holmes put it this way, Men are idolaters and want something to look at and kiss and hug and throw themselves down before. They always did. They always will. And if you don't make it out of wood, you must make it out of words. This is why a good cause, world peace, or save the earth, or save the whales for that matter, can be turned into an idol. What really matters to you? What is important to you? Is it the recognition of your peers? Is it status among those you roll with? Is it the promotion and the elevation of status? Is it the accruements that come with success? Is it the good life, physical pleasures, ease and comfort? What's your drive? What's your desire? What's the passion of your life? Are you in a red-hot, all-out pursuit of God in His holiness? You used to be. What's happened? Has your heart cooled? Here's another Hank Williams song. Listen to the opening line. In fact, if you can hear God singing in a country twang, imagine God singing this to you. Well, why don't you love me like you used to do? How come you treat me like a worn out shoe? My hair's still curly and my eyes are still blue. Why don't you love me like you used to do? My hair's still curly and my eyes are still blue. Why don't you love me like you used to do? But hey, think about that in regards to God. Why don't you love Him like you used to do? Is your love cold? Has God been crowded out of your life? Has He been overshadowed by other stuff? When my relationship with Jesus begins to play second fiddle, when He takes a back seat to something else, that's a sign that there's an idol in my life. 1 John 5 verse 21 is a warning to New Testament believers. Keep yourselves from idols. You recall what Jesus said to the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2. I have this against you, that you have left your first love. And every married person in this room this morning knows how easy this can happen. A marriage gets busy. A couple starts to ignore each other or take each other for granted or just stop communicating and nurturing their relationship. All of a sudden, these little unresolved differences begin to drive a wedge. And one day, you wake up in this cold, frosty relationship. 
And this can happen in our relationship with Jesus. Once Mark Twain was asked about the reason for his success in life, he replied, I was born excited. And so were you. Do you remember those feelings that you had when you first embraced Jesus, when you were first born again? The joy and the gratitude and the relief you felt when it dawned on you that all your sin had suddenly been rolled away and had been forgiven. That that enormous burden you'd been carrying was gone. For days afterwards, there was a smile on your face, a bounce in your step. You grinned for months. That's right. You were once born excited. But what about the state of your heart today? Is God asking you, why don't you love me like you used to do? Author Max Licato, he writes these sobering words. Satan won't steal your salvation. He'll just make you forget what it's like to be lost. You'll grow accustomed to prayer and thereby not pray. Worship will become commonplace and Bible study optional. With the passing of time, He'll infiltrate your heart with boredom and cover the cross with dust so you'll be safely out of the reach of change. He'll take nothing from you, but will cause you to take everything for granted. Here's why a heart grows cold. While love and loyalty fade, we take God for granted. His amazing grace becomes commonplace. We lose the wonder of it all. Paul writes to his friend Titus, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. What is it that teaches us how to deny ungodliness and avoid worldly lust? It's grace. By staying fixated on the love of Jesus, the love that He has shown us, we're more inclined to love Him in return. It's grace that keeps my heart from growing cold. Grace keeps me mesmerized with God's love. Grace is the drink that quenches my spiritual thirst. Grace fans the flame of my passion for God. Grace keeps me humble and makes me thankful. Grace reminds me that God gave me His best when I was at my worst. It's grace that God's my heart from the world's intrusions and keeps it patiently waiting on the gentle shapings and whispers of my Lord Jesus. What keeps other interests from coming in and crowding out the Lord? It's the humility that comes with an understanding and an appreciation of God's grace. God made me a promise. Am I keeping my promise to Him? Always remember, idolatry is not a statue, it's a state of heart. It happens when I allow other things to crowd God out of His rightful place in my life. Suddenly, He's no longer the primary reason I'm doing what I'm doing. And it's such a subtle thing. When an, when an item becomes an idol. You know, whenever that happens, I'm sure the Holy Spirit alerts us. He nudges us, he whispers to us a warning, but often the momentum toward that thing is rolling so strong that it just tends to drown out everything else. Sometimes we don't know what's happened until later. 
I think this is why James sends a wake-up call to his readers. In James chapter 4, verse 4, he writes, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Just the act of enjoying this world without God is enough to insult the God who died for us and who loves us. You wouldn't want to go to an important event without your spouse. Why would you want to engage the world without God? As believers committed to God, it's our responsibility to remain internally loyal. If we flirt with the world in our hearts, if we pursue its thrills and its lusts, we're betraying our allegiance to God. He wants to be the love of our lives. We all need to remind ourselves that every human heart has a throne. And did you know that throne is a single seater? Jesus said in Matthew 6, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. Your heart has room for only one master. Whenever I officiate a wedding, I I make it a habit to tell the couple, we don't expect you to be perfect. We know better. But we do expect you to be faithful. And that's God's expectation of us. He knows that we're not perfect. As the psalmist said, He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. God is well aware that there will be moments in our lives when we'll fail Him. But even in our failures, God still expects us to be faithful. He wants our heart, our allegiance. He wants us to desire Him and His will above all else. God made you a promise. Are you keeping your promise to Him? When you think it through, there's really only one thing that I possess that God doesn't already own. And that is my heart. He doesn't need my service or my sweat or my sacrifice. He has angels that serve Him. He is an all-powerful God. The only sacrifice that really matters to Him is that of Jesus. The one thing that God wants that I can can really give Him is my heart, my love, my loyalty. And when I come to God holding in my hands a bunch of other stuff, that disappoints Him. He wants me to love Him with all my heart, with an unrivaled affection. John Ruskin once wrote, Christ will put up with a great many things in the human heart, but there is one thing He will not put up with, and that's second place. The tragedy in Ezekiel 16 is that Judah reacted to God's amazing grace, not by returning love for love, but they responded to God's love with a cheating heart. You know, the chorus of Hank Williams' song actually holds out hope for a cheating heart. Hear the lyrics that he sings. Your cheating heart will make you weep. You'll cry and cry and try to sleep. But sleep won't come the whole night through. For your cheating heart will tell on you. In the song, Hank is the jilted lover who's counting on the troubled conscience of the woman he loves to keep her up at night. He hopes she cries and cries the whole night long. He's trusting that her cheating heart will rat her out. 
Tragically, Judah and the Jews slept just fine. The conscience of God's people had become so seared. But not so with us. For if you are a Christian, the Holy Spirit lives in you. He convicts you. He warns you. When I start to take God's grace for granted, when I forget how good God's been to me, when my heart starts to stray, when I start to turn a toy into an idol, an alarm goes off inside. God shocks me to my senses. And if that's what He's doing in your heart this morning, I pray you'll take heed. Confess your self-sufficiency. Repent of your pride. Remind yourself of how good and gracious God has been to you. How much you owe Him. How much you need Him. Here's the conclusion this morning. If you want to protect against a cheating heart, then make sure you keep singing Amazing Grace.